Hey, good morning, Sanctus Church. So glad that you're joining us here today. Welcome to week two in our Christmas series and welcome again to the Advent season. Now, as you read the whole Christmas narrative from beginning to end in Matthew and Mark and Luke and sort of in John, you will begin to see there are three grand journeys that happen down here. I mean, the first one is from upstairs, Jesus coming down. But then you've got Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then you've got the Magi from the east to Bethlehem. And then you've got the Holy Family running from Bethlehem to Egypt. It's also a journey of symbols, manger, star, and gifts. Now, the symbol we're going to talk about today, the star, is celebrated in what we call epiphany. Now, epiphany means insight or a revelation or appearing or appearance. Now, in the New Testament, it refers to two things. The first epiphany is when Jesus is born. Jesus comes into the world, reveals who God is fully, for he's the second person of the Trinity. And when he comes, he shows the way home. The second epiphany is at the end of time, when Jesus will come to judge all humanity. Now, the season of epiphany in the Western church traditional calendar is celebrated between the Sundays of January 2nd and January 8th. And it focuses on the star and the wise men as they come to find Jesus the Christ. Now, there are tons of global Christian traditions around the world that come from this part of the story. The first day of Christmas, technically on the calendar, is Christmas Day, which makes January 5th the 12th day. That's where we get the idea of 12th night from. Maybe you've heard of that. This is also where we get songs like the 12 days of Christmas. But more than that, all around the world, there's these amazing epiphany celebrations. In Germany, there used to be a tradition where children would be called star singers. They would walk up to your house. They'd knock on the door. This is after Christmas. Then they'd sing an epiphany song to you. And then they'd mark your house in shock and say, may Jesus the Christ bless this house. In Spain and Latin America, the season of Epiphany, they call them the Three Kings Days. They're bigger gift-giving days and eating days, actually, than Christmas itself. And during that week specifically, children would write letters, not to Santa, they write letters to the kings. And they leave their shoes out at night and sometimes some hay for their tired camels. And they hope the next day the kings have come by and they have filled their shoes with presents or candy. Now, on Epiphany itself, the actual Epiphany Day, there are extravagant parades all across Latin America. And the Magi come in on camels, sometimes in boats, sometimes even in helicopters. And they grab the letters from the kids, and then they throw candy at the children. Now, all these parties around the world, in Europe and Latin America, etc., always include some type of show-stopping cake. They come in all sorts of forms and flavors, but these, what they call king cakes, you see them in Belgium, you see them in Spain, you see them in Latin America, even in parts of the United States in the South. There's a ceramic little baby Jesus, not a small cheese, a baby Jesus And the one who gets the baby Jesus becomes king for a day. So there's these amazing, amazing stories and experiences that have come from this part of the Christmas story. But let's all go back, whether seeker or believer, skeptic, no matter where you are, let's hear afresh the story of the wise men. Matthew 2, 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. Jesus has already been born. Now, if you read all the gospel accounts, here's how they've described Jesus already. 
Savior, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, Prince of Peace, King of the Jews, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's quite a series of titles. Yet this child king is born during the time of other kings. And Matthew refers to King Herod. Now, last week when we were hanging out, remember Luke contrasted Jesus against Augustus, the Roman ruler. Because remember, Augustus had been called the son of God, divine, his birthday marked peace for all people. So Luke's asking the question, who's the real son of God? Who's really divine? Who's the Lord of the earth? Who brings real peace that lasts? But Matthew's original audience isn't non-Jewish, it's Jewish. So that's why he focuses on King Herod, because King Herod called himself the king of the Jews. And as I've shared in Christmas past, Herod truly is the dark side of Christmas. He's a ruthless politician. He's a dictator. He's a Roman collaborator and puppet. He's a psychopath, and he's a paranoid murderer. If you just want to know his MO, he killed up to half of the Sanhedrin, He killed 300 court officials. He had the high priest and his brother-in-law drowned in front of his own eyes for sport. He executed his wife, her mother, and three of their sons because he was paranoid about a takeover. He had three of his uncles murdered. And as he lay dying, the goal was that every single nobleman in Jerusalem would be executed when he breathed his last breath. The guy was a psycho. But he was a brilliant politician and actually a world-renowned architect. And so when... Some other people from the East come and say another king has been born. He's going to have no time for this. So these, as we jokingly or or historically call them kings of the East, not really kings, but kings of the East arrive. They're full of anticipation and expectation. By the way, that's the difference between uh, the shepherds and the wise men. The shepherds have no expectation. These kings have expectation. But more, I'd never seen this before. My, My mentor pointed this out a few weeks ago. If you read other translations like the King James Version or especially the English Standard Version, the ESV, they keep a little word uh, because they translate word for word where the NIV translates sort of thought for word. And so uh, they keep a little word in there that's missed in what I usually preach out of. It feels old, but it's really important. Let me read it again in Matthew 2.1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, see that little old English-sounding word, behold. We don't use that very much anymore. Behold means look. But in the original language, it's not just, hey, look. It's a command. You must look. Look, look. Look over there. You've got to listen to this. You've got to see this. This matters so much. Listen so closely. You'll never guess what happened. I can't believe this. Now, behold is used 40 times by Matthew at every critical moment in Jesus' ministry. The first behold moment happens at Jesus' birth. Remember, Joseph is engaged to Mary, and in that culture, engagement equaled marriage. Mary suddenly is pregnant but hasn't had sex. Joseph, of course, doesn't believe her, believes Mary's committed adultery. So now he has to divorce her, and in that culture, there are two ways to get divorced. The first one is a public divorce, a formal breaking of the vows, going before the elders of the village, public branding of Mary as adulteress, and most likely Mary being stoned to death publicly. The other is private, only two or three witnesses. This would allow Joseph to maintain his religious standing to save Mary from public humiliation and possible physical execution. I'm sure depending on the hour he vacillated, 
But as he's doing this, watch what happens in Matthew 1.20. As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you, Joseph, shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken in the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hey, Joseph, behold, look, this is from God. Hey, everyone, behold, a virgin having a child, behold. And then back to the wise men. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Look, everyone, listen, you won't believe who showed up in Jerusalem. What are they doing here? Actually, they don't belong in this story at all. The wise men traveled 900 miles, two years, to find this child. And as they arrive, they consult Herod, the king of the Jews, and the theologians. And this is what they say in verse 2. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Now, most of us, believers or not, miss again the scandal of this part of the story. Many of us who have church background have been taught by story or tradition or pageants or by history or uh, you remember Christmas cards, a few of you remember those ancient times, where the wise men and the shepherds and the angel were all at the manger with, you know, the donkey and the sheep, but they weren't. <laughs> they came years later and Jesus is no longer a baby. He's a toddler. He's two or three years old. Many say, well, there was three wise men because there are three gifts, but of course, that doesn't mean anything. If I get a bottle of cologne for Christmas and, and a sweater and, I don't know, uh, an iPad, I, that doesn't mean it comes from three people. And then, of course, in church tradition, three names were added later, but there's, there's no history from this. But the scandal is not the wrong manger scene, but it's that non-Jews, and especially these non-Jews, are invited by God to know him. So, again... Many of us know this, but some of you who are just learning or exploring don't. So let me do this again. Who are these kings of the East? Who, who are these wise men? Who are these magi? Well, magi simply means magician. They were found in now what we call Iraq, Iran, and the Arabian Peninsula. They would have been exposed to the Jewish faith many times because all sorts of very large Jewish communities lived in these countries after the Second Great Exile. They established themselves. There was major Jewish centers of learning. So these scholars and these scientists and these theologians would interact with Jewish communities and argued with each other, but, but more. One historian breaks it down like this. They were first of all, to be sure, wise men. Scholars of the stars found in Persia in the land of two rivers, that's Iraq. At the root of the ancient study of stars was the, the conviction that the microcosm of humanity was in a magnetic symbiotic relationship with a microcosm of the stars. Astronomy is the study of the law or movement of stars, and astrology is the study of the message of stars. Now, these two disciplines, now rightly separated in our time, were combined in the ancient world in the same person. And because of their skill in deciphering not just the movement of the stars, but the message of the stars, they were considered, everyone ready, wise men. Yet again, this brings into focus the scandal of Christmas. Not only were they non-Jews, which was bad enough to the ancient Jewish worldview, 
God would not save non-Jews unless they fully converted to Judaism. But you need to know, even if you fully converted, you never had the same access to God like a Jew did. To the Jewish mind, they would never expect God to introduce himself or speak to shepherds who were part of God's community, but at the lower end. So they would never, never, ever believe that God would want to love or save or know non-Jews, especially Magi. God didn't care about them. Actually, he'd condemn them. Why? Well, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and for us as Christians today, astrology is forbidden because it's occultic in practice. You are going around God and around God's word to get answers to the universe and connecting with spiritual things that are not connected to God. Astrology is sin. You're engaging in supernatural acts without permission by God. He never gives permission for this. And long before the kings came, Long before the G- Jesus was born, one of the great famous Jewish scholars and rabbis said, he who learns from the Magi is worthy of death. Now, here's what's even more crazy. I pointed this out a few years ago. Matthew is writing this letter to a Jewish community trying to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. So why in the world is Matthew committing such a foot-and-mouth moment talking about this part of the story when this is offensive to Jews? And Matthew's going to turn around and say, well, of course I'm keeping this part of the story in, A, because it happened, but B, we need to understand what God's heart really is. Now, his Jewish friends and critics would say, what are you doing? And he'd turn around and say, you remember my story, right? I'm Matthew, Levi. I was a Jewish tax collector. Again, you're like, what? Okay, Jewish tax collectors worked for the Roman occupational army. Jewish tax collectors had made a deal with the devil and sold their soul for money. They were working. It would be like working for the Nazis in occupied France. So the Romans had come in and conquered the Jewish people, ethnic rights, killed thousands. Everything the Romans represented was against the Jewish faith. And we know from reading multiple other historians that Jewish tax collectors were not only involved in a dangerous government, they were involved in mass exploitation through lying and cheating and bribing and stealing. They overtaxed their own people and got very wealthy. Now, if you chose to become a Roman tax collector as a Jew, you were removed from the Jewish faith, you were kicked out of the synagogue system, and most of you had to leave your family and friends and faith to get rich. Years after the Christmas event, This is how Jesus meets Matthew. Matthew 9.10. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the pastors, saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with compromised people, tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. See, Jesus was going to bring all sorts of people to be saved. Hated, collaborating tax collectors and occultic wise men and sex trade workers and Jews and Greeks and Samaritans and Romans and soldiers and religiously inspired terrorists and ostracized lepers and great religious leaders, all were going to be welcomed into his family through his birth, through his ministry, through his life, through his teaching, through his death, through his resurrection. But notice again, this is why Matthew includes this, God always has to start the journey. Jesus went to Matthew and said, I want to eat with you at your house. With Mary and Joseph, God sent an angel and said, this is happening. With the shepherds, they weren't looking, and so an angel shows up. With the magi, God chooses a star in the sky to get them going, like Suri, take me to, take me to Jerusalem. Okay, back to the moment. 900 miles later, these people who should not be here, 
Notice what they ask Herod and the theologians. Not where's the monument, not where's the place, not, where, not, not, not where's the book to go read. Where's the person? Where's the one who's born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Okay, let's talk about the star. It's the symbol we're focusing on today. Not only did this physically happen, it was predicted so long ago. See, again, if you really want to understand the richness of the New Testament, you need to read your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's another story that was preparing the world for this one. Listen to one Old Testament scholar as he outlines it. Ready? When Moses was leading Israel through the desert towards the promised land, he encountered another wicked king who, like Pharaoh, tried to destroy Moses and God's people. His name was Balak, king of Moab, and he summoned from the east a famous seer named Balaam who was to use his arts against Moses and Israel, basically curse them. Balaam was a non-Israelite, occultic visionary, a practicer of enchantment, in Jesus' day would be called a magi. Okay, he and his two servants came, but instead of cursing Moses and Israel, he had a favorable vision of their future. And here's one little part of it from Numbers 24, 15. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the one who sees, whose eyes see clearly, and then he predicts this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So Balaam comes from the east, just like the Magi do. He uses supernatural arts, just like the Magi do. He predicts a star, which will symbolize the coming of one whose rule would last forever. In other words, he was predicting the coming of Jesus. By the way, God will use anything to draw people to himself. God always begins our journey where we're at. By the way, we've talked about this in years past, but maybe this will be a reminder for you, or maybe this is new. Have you ever asked, what star did they actually see? I mean, the heavens were declaring wild things happening over Israel, but what was it? And, and by the way, did anyone talk about this outside of the Bible? Well, yes. One person wrote this. Some scholars think the star was the light produced by a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which happened three times in 7 BC. Such a celestial event would have been of particular interest because Jupiter, in this moment, in astrology, was commonly associated with kingly rule and Saturn was connected to the Jewish people. To the Magi, the star of Bethlehem was a sign that a glorious kingdom was about to dawn among the Jewish people. By the way, this is the one I think is probably the right one. Others say it's not the alignment. There was a comet that was seen. Others point to a supernova that was recorded by both Chinese and Korean astronomers in April of 5 BC. Others say, no, no, it's not a natural event. It's a supernatural event. God literally sent an angel. And multiple times in the Bible, angels are called stars or the metaphor is used. 200 years after the Bible was written, one person wrote this. In the same hour, there appeared to them an angel in the form of a star and guided them on their journey. Well, no matter which one it was, God, the sustainer of creation, was using creation to declare it had begun. And God was using nature to reveal, to promote, to call these astronomer astrologers, these new age scientists, to come and find him. As I've shared before, let me do it again though. Nature and experience is very important but they are never the full witness about God or his working. They start you on the journey, but they can't end. See, knowing God is like walking into a house and there's two levels. 
The first level is nature. You could know there is a God, he's an artist, that he's a God of order and creation, he's fine-tuned the universe. You can even know at points that might, he might be active. It's what theologians call general revelation. But to move to the second level of the house, you need specific revelation. You need God to open your eyes. Then you can know his name, his nature, his love, his expectations. You can know God is only one, and yet in community, Trinity. This is what's amazing. This star was moving these educated, wealthy, spiritually-minded scientists towards the one that created nature and the supernatural. The 900-mile journey is basically them walking through the front door of the house into the first level and then walking up the second level to meet the person. Well, back to the story, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, well, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And and when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out the exact time the star had appeared, sent them to Bethlehem, and said, go make a careful search for this child. As soon as you find him, ah, come back to me, report to me. I need to go worship him too. Ruthless, cunning, and dangerous. He doesn't want to go worship this child. He wants to murder this child. And it isn't shocking that the religious leaders, the pastors and theologians of the day that had access to the temple and access to God's word, unlike these non-Jewish people who knew where the Messiah was supposed to come. Do they go and check out if Jesus has been born? The the Messiah has been born? Do they go with these magi to see if the fulfillment of their faith? No. The insiders are apathetic, religiously or politically paranoid, and do not become pilgrims. It takes outsiders to go see if it's going to happen. Well, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Oh, did you catch it? There's that word behold again. See, what is implied here is shocking and missed, I think, by most of us, especially all of us who grew up in church. Now, I've heard this story for 45 years, and I didn't catch it till this week. So the Magi started their journey with the iconic symbol we're talking about today, the star. But if you read the text, it seems like the star then disappeared for a while. And then they traveled for two years, probably without seeing it. And then lo and behold, there it is again. That's why it says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. It shows back up. It becomes clear. It leads. It's like they saw it, they lost it, they traveled, and they found it again. See, that's faith. Uh, Seeing and then not seeing and still acting. Overjoyed, by the way, is such a strong word in Greek. It means like winning the lottery, a clean bill of health after cancer. It's, it, it's just worth it. And they travel the last 5.8 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it says the star rests, points over the place where the family was staying. And they knock on the door, and there would have been this two- or three-year-old toddler. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. Now we're going to get to the gifts on Christmas Eve, but let's just stop here. 
And let's all be honest in this Advent season, in this Christmas season, in 2020, about who Jesus really is. Jesus. His birth, his life, his teachings, his acts, his claims about his identity later, his real physical death, his real physical resurrection, his ascension has always divided people. And I really want to focus my conversation on, again, you who are seekers or skeptics or you who are sort of attached to the faith or not attached at all. The star signals a great contrast. The Magi are seekers that move to believers. Herod and the religious clergy seem not to connect. They ignore, they respond fearfully to his presence. When you come face to face with Jesus, there's no middle ground. Either he's God in flesh or he's not. Either he's the savior of the world or he's not. Either he's the only way back to the Father or he's not. You must accept him or reject him on his terms, not on yours. I love years ago when one pastor rightly said, possessing Bible knowledge about Jesus is never enough. One must act upon the knowledge they have in order to be saved. The non-Jewish magi did not have as much knowledge about Jesus as the religious clergy did in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, they acted on the knowledge they had. They found the Christ child and they worshipped him. They found salvation, but many in Jerusalem did not or would not. So first question, who do you actually think Jesus is? What do you do with him? Second, and this is critical, Don't get stuck on the journey. Now, in this church, we are great with journey. We are so glad. Bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your criticism, do your historical analysis, do all of that. But, but, yes, as human beings, we're searching for significance and purpose and hope and love and journey is important. But in our culture right now, journey is idolized. People say this all the time. The journey is more important than the destination. No, it's not. In this case, the destination is the most important thing. Don't use I'm still journeying as an excuse never to get to the person at the end of the destination. Here's another thing. I know a lot of you watching are supernatural. You're spiritual. You're into experience. Others of you who are watching are are maybe more philosophical or intellectual. And some of you are like the Magi. You're a two-for-one special. Nature, really important. Science, absolutely important. Philosophy and supernatural experiences and psychology, all of it. There's so much good in all those categories. But just like the star and the presence of light were not enough, so the same with all of those categories. All of reality, all that you're reading and experiencing are pointing you to the artist of reality, the author of reality, the architect of reality. God himself is found fully in Jesus. So don't just, not, don't just get stuck on the journey. Also, don't get stuck with the star. And, and don't just get stuck with fact-finding. Oh, I'm a type of person who reads history and theology and philosophy and believes that if you're going to have a robust faith, you have to have intellectual uh, connection. And science is not the enemy of faith. And personal interviews are so important. And like I said, we're so good and okay that you bring questions and do your homework. But see, again, there must be a moment, and I'm speaking to a small group of you, but it's so critical, where you move from the journey, and you move from the experiences, and you move from the fact-funding to encounter. 
A few weeks ago, I had shared with you that we decided to move because COVID wasn't boring enough for us. So we decided to sell our house in the middle of a pandemic and move. And we moved to this gorgeous little town just east of here, about a half an hour, called Port Hope. Now, after everyone said, you're crazy and why are you moving there and it's too far and all those things, almost every person we talked to said, well, if you're moving to Port Hope, you must go to Jim's Pizza. Like every person we talked to talked about Jim's Pizza. And I know some of you, you've heard me use this analogy before, but again, for you who are seekers or skeptics, this is so important. So we had personal testimony that Jim's Pizza existed. Multiple people had told us about it. And then we drove to Port Hope and we drove down the main street and we actually saw Jim's Pizza. The hole in the wall, really. And then uh, a few weeks ago, when we finally moved, we were taking our dogs for a walk at night and we walked by Jim's Pizza and we smelled Jim's Pizza. And by the way, it smelled really amazing. And then later that week, we decided it was time. And so we ordered Jim's Pizza. I walked into Jim's Pizza. I picked up the pizza. I brought it home and I ate it. And by the way, it was worth the drive to Port Hope. It's worth living in Port Hope for Jim's Pizza. It's that good. But, but here's the point. Just like Jim's Pizza, you can know it exists. You can go online and see it. You can interview people that actually know about it. You can walk by and smell it. You can even stand and see them make it. But until you put it in your mouth, you have not had Jim's Pizza. This Christmas, God has started to speak to so many of you to bring you home. And it is time to move from fact-finding and stars to encounter. Let me quote again the message of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you have never, ever ever truly encountered Jesus because your allegiance is to yourself or looks or money or being self-made or you give allegiance to another religion, it is time to put all that down and just like the wise men, kneel and encounter him. All the fact-finding, all the intellect, all the experiences are pointing you to this moment. And this is what you need to pray in your apartment building, in your condo, in your home, while you're in a car. Maybe someone's still in an airplane somewhere, I don't know. Just say, dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, so I could actually get to know you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being with me my whole life if I didn't even fully know it. I admit I need a savior to free me from my sin, myself, habits, hurts, hangups, my life. Forgive me of my sins, Jesus. I repent and now want to live the way you've created me to live. Don't just save me from my sin. Be the Lord of my life. Save me by your grace. Save me from my sin. Save me now for your purposes. I want to learn to love you, trust you, and become what you've made me to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us watching this sermon, you might have learned something new, or the Holy Spirit may have pointed something out, but you're like, John, I... I knew all of this. What are you going to give to me as a Christian? Nothing. You're like, what? Oh, oh, listen. Our most significant job between now and Christmas Eve 
is to invite people to hear the good news. We have this unbelievable moment as a church because we're virtual and Christmas Eve is going to be virtual and we can invite anyone to access our service. So I'm just going to say this. Stop right now and write down or text or call or DM or invite over Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter. Like literally invite as many people as you can to Christmas Eve so they can hear the good news of the gospel. We have this unbelievable virtual moment to share the good news and invite so many people, even more than usual on Christmas Eve. You know the good news. You've already bowed like the wise men. You've already said yes to Jesus. And you say, what's the take home? Here's the take home. Start praying and inviting as many people so they can hear the good news and encounter him on Christmas Eve. Thanks, Lord, for what you're doing. Thanks, Lord, that you came for us. Thanks that you call people from all sorts of wild backgrounds. Thanks that you've called us and you've forgiven us and you've made us right. We now pray that people listening right now who have not accepted you would do this in Jesus' name. But more than that, we pray right now that many, 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 many people would hear the good news of Jesus on Christmas Eve and would become followers of you. Would you do a most miraculous thing? Would a star appear in a dark sky and bring people to yourself? Would you do the impossible on Christmas Eve and use us and tell us who we're supposed to speak to now in Jesus' name? And we all said, amen. Cannot wait to see you Christmas Eve as we gather in a very odd way, but we're still going to celebrate the good news of Jesus and pray that many, many more accept Christ. We'll see you on Christmas. Mm -hmm.